0: Good day. Good day. Good day. Hello. 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 Today is Wednesday, May 4. And we've got another great space in store for you. Um, Peter Atwater, who really needs no introduction. So I've heard Peter. Peter and I have talked a few times. I heard Peter uh, and it was Michael Guyad's Space a couple months ago. And I'm really fascinated by what Peter does. Um, Basically, Yeah, he'll explain it. But why do people do crazy things? Why do people do stupid things? Um, I studied dismal science in uh, college, and studied a little bit of psychology, but I never really got into the behavioral economics thing uh, too much. And but it's always been a real source of fascination to me. And there is so much wild stuff going on in the world right now. So much speculation. You kind of wonder, like, you know, what were they thinking? But at any rate, uh, that's what Peter's here to discuss. So I was uh, out of pocket for a couple hours this afternoon. I guess I missed something. Someone can explain to me why the market went so crazy. I guess everything is fine now. Inflation is transitory. Uh, they don't have to do it, raise rates so much, and we'll live happily ever after. But we can save that for later. Without any further ado, um, I want to welcome Peter to the stage. And, you know, Peter, I threw some crazy topics in the title um basically just trying to think of all the stupid stuff that's out there and you can really take this conversation in any direction you want um i think it's it really is a fascinating topic and i think to get some insights for you from you why why people do all this stuff is really, really really interesting um so peter um You know, I'm not going to, they didn't come here to listen to me. They came here to listen to you. So, Peter, I'm going to yield the floor to you and take it away and go in whatever direction you want. Welcome, Peter.
1: Uh, Thanks, George. Uh, Delighted to be here. And, uh, you know, this this is a fascinating time as somebody who spends his day looking at the connection between how people feel and what they would do. And, you know, I I think if I could work um, forward from... Ah, uh, fifteen months ago, I, I think that starting point is so critical to what's happening today. because two things happened last when you know late last winter that I think remain underappreciated. Um, they got a lot of attention, but they the context didn't get didn't get captured by by folks. And, and the first, obviously, is what happened with with meme stocks, and um, you know, the, the just the piling into weekly call options that we saw, and and those are things that, as somebody who spends his day looking at behavior, those were things that only happen at extremes in sentiment. When you feel invincible, you you buy the most abstract, outrageous things that have a time horizon of an infinity and you pay the most for them and you buy them in the wildest, most leveraged format that you can find. And so, so we saw on the equity side people doing just that. And, and simultaneously, we saw bond yields become the most negative they had been in global history. So we had the simultaneous peaking of stocks and bonds that you know, modern portfolio theory suggests should never happen coincidentally. And And I think what we've seen and and continue to see, you know today, notwithstanding, is a very clear, logical retreat from abstraction that people want things that are, more and more real. And we, you know, it got labeled lots of different things last year, you know, that stay-at-home stocks and all this other crap. But but what we really saw was the natural unwinding of a bubble. It and bubbles unwind in a lifo basis. The the wildest things, the last of the party, leave first. And what's so significant to me about 2022 is we're now seeing sentiment begin to evaporate in the in the big tech the, the realest of real technology companies and the analogy i would use is the the too big to fail banks we're seeing the same thing now in in technology the too big to fail big tech firms are are you know coming under attention and i'll i'll pause there george
0: so what, just, what I find extraordinary about the environment we've been in the, in, the, in the last few years, as opposed to past cycles, where you'd have more localized bubbles, speculation. I think back to 2000, NASDAQ 5000. It was a dot-com bubble. The technology sector was the apple of everyone's eye. And it disintermediated the entire rest of the economy. It was tech, all tech, nothing but tech. And there was a narrative. Essentially what happened is the central banks printed a ton of money and then run up to Y2K. Everyone was afraid that when the clock struck 12, like, you know, it became over. And it wasn't game over. And then when... January 1st, 2000 came and went, they gradually took the money away and the whole thing collapsed. This time, though, you know the phrase, Peter, they call it the everything bubble. Everything's been inflated, meaning they overcooked it, they put in too much fiscal stimulus, too much monetary stimulus, stocks became overpriced, bonds became overpriced, commodities went up, collectibles went up, baseball cards went up everything went up and now we're kind of normalizing with fully predictable outcomes and those assets which were most detached from reality most liquidity driven be it GameStop or SPACs or marijuana stocks or just go down the list I mean it's it's unbelievable but the point is it happened everywhere and so I guess, Peter, what I would ask you is, as opposed to 2000, the tech bubble, you have the whole system becoming untethered. And, you know, the word bubble is thrown around a lot, but the best definition I've heard for it is a bubble is something which causes people to change their behavior. It changes decision-making process. Um, You know there was the concept of the rational bubble. Maybe you could explain that a little bit. If people do stupid stuff, it's a rational bubble. I mean, because they know drone pals are going to be people filling up the bathtub and putting more water in, it's like, you know, buy high and sell higher. It's a greater fool theory and it keeps working until it doesn't. So I guess the question I'd asked there, I was trying to get context to the question. I'm not trying to make a speech is what is your take on just how widespread this has been and how it's really gotten into the mainstream, this whole sort of zeitgeist of, of, of society, and in comparing that to past bubbles? Now, you may say, well, well hell, George, this is nothing new. We had the South Sea bubble. We had the Dutch tulip bulb, many, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But could you give us any context to compare and contrast what we've seen in the last few years with other great bubbles, booms, and busts that we've seen throughout history, Peter?
1: yeah so I, I think from a historical perspective two things really stand out to me. one is the breadth that you mentioned and and here I think we have to um, acknowledge just the the social and financial interconnectivity that exists across markets globally, whether it's um, you know the intellectual thinking behind central bank monetary policy, um, the The global trade phenomenon, but there's a there's sort of a tacona narrows um, resonance quality where all markets in all places are moving up and down synchronously. and and that to me reflects a an absence of what I call confidence diversification. I think one of the you know the, the reason a diversified portfolio works isn't because you hold different things, it's because you hold different things that people feel differently about. And that note that does not exist today outside of, of the commodity space. You know, there there is a there is a uniform confidence in in everything at the same Frenzied level that, that is a mm-hmm. is the backdrop to this. The the and and so I agree that in the scale of of financial bubbles, this is enormous. The other element of this, and I and I wrote a piece for the FT about this, is it relates to speed. Um, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes from all of the the financial panic porn that I read during the housing bubble burst was the panic of 1857. And, you know, why do, why do we care about that one? Well, we, we care about that one because unlike prior crises, which took weeks, months, in some cases, even years to play out, it took days and weeks. And the reason was the telegraph. that technology enabled communication, the crowd to move faster, more on a more integrated basis than ever. Well, today... We, we have, you know, telegraph 12.0 with all of the technology that we hold in our hands. And so it doesn't surprise me that we have this, this we had this massive hyperinflation in financial assets post-pandemic because it does, you know, ra- rising prices change us. They, they become a you know, the, the lantern to which all moths gravitate and, and nothing makes a crowd become, you know, larger and wilder than, uh, than lines that go vertically. And, and so I, I think we saw these two phenomenon come together where, as you pointed out, people bought just about anything and, and the wilder they could find, the, the better. You know, speculation only happens at the very end of a, of a cycle when people are convinced things go up. And and I think that the the monetary and fiscal policy backdrop of of post COVID gave everyone a a legitimate reason to believe that you know markets only go up.
0: Number only go up, bro. Number only go up. So rather than just, you know, talking about AMC Apes or GameStop or the latest crazy spec. As a point of interesting cocktail party conversation, could you speak to the more general, broader misallocation of resources that's occurring as a result? And I'm not. I'm not. We'll, we'll get to these. This generation of investors blowing themselves up. We'll get to that later. But in the bigger scheme of things, following narrative, people um, want a good story. And then you get this self-reinforcing feedback loop where you start getting some momentum and people pile in. And then it's FOMO, the fear of missing out, and greed taking over. I, just the gross misallocation of resources. And I'm not talking about GameStop and AMC. I'm talking about um, these IPOs coming out at absurd prices. There's a paper from I'll, – I'll post it, but – my friends at Kalish Concepts, Matt Mulgary and others, they is a, a couple, they do some really, really good work. You should follow them, everyone that's not on here, at Kalish is their um, Twitter feed. And they show historically what happens when you're paying 20 times sales for, for a company. And it's just mind-boggling. On a 10-year view, the company, not only does it have a chance of underperforming, on a 10-year view, it has a fifty-five percent chance of being delisted. You heard me right, delisted. And so, people chasing all these crazy stories, and, and you know, it's one IPO after another, um, and a few billion here, a few billion there. It adds up, becomes real money. So, putting, putting, leaving less the behavioral piece out of it, more just the economic side of it, the misallocation of resources that things are, you know money's being put into yet another food delivery app or another dating service. Like this is what we really need. And, and I'm just, and maybe it's beyond your, 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 your not your pay grade, but it's beyond your scope of expertise. But it just strikes me. It's just been so much money misallocated in so many, so many of the wrong sectors because people want to believe the story and they just run with the story. And you know, one of the main, it's a good story. And then on top of it, you got, you got bro number only going up. So, could you speak to what's what's the real economic consequence of of all of this? I guess that would be my question.
1: Well, I, I think the economic conf- consequence is going to be massive because there. If you think about our preferences as existing on a, a continuum, you know, where the trolley car goes back and forth, we what we allocated capital into. You know, particularly towards the tail end of the cycle, were were stories dream, that became dreams that became, you know, wildish, outlandish imaginations, and 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 that's a that's a that means that we we put the most capital into the most outrageous things at the highest price, and and when, when the trolley car starts to go back the other way, what we want is things that are very real, that are tangible, that have, you know, forget cash flows, you know, that have cash that have, you know, at, at the, at the complete other end of the spectrum, you know, you you see people stuffing physical cash in a mattress under their bed. But, but what happens, George, is the, the change, it's, it's not just an economic change. It, it's a complete preference change where we don't, we don't give a shit about the stuff that's abstract. It has no use to us. And so I, I think we underappreciate the, the magnitude of the wasteland of ideas that, you know, folks in the future are going to chuckle enormously that we believe this stuff but there there was staggering amounts of capital being committed to it that will go worthless at the bottom because it's not what we what we want when we don't have confidence it it doesn't have any any real use to us
0: right so let's go on the way back machine i think many of the people in the room maybe not everyone are old enough to remember the dot-com era and everyone got sucked into it most everyone Whether it's Pets.com or Beanie Babies or MySpace or AOL, just go down the list. It's all the same. Fiber optic companies, Global Crossing, et cetera, et cetera. What's the psychological fallout from that? How long does it take for people to, like, unforget that they got burned and get bagged yet again? In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. We go through these cycles, and it's like wash, rinse, repeat. So, a lot of the investors who are, have been in the market for the first time since the post Great Financial Crisis, they don't know anything about Nasdaq five thousand and two thousand. They can read about it, but reading about it is no substitute for having lived it and having gotten blown up in it. So, <clears throat> for those though that lived through it, are they? Is there a muscle memory there? Are they a little bit scarred, a little bit more hesitant, having seen how this craziness can go off the rails? And so. You know, is is the learning just temporary, or do people actually carry a message with them?
1: No, I mean, if you if you look at generational investing, I, I mean, I, I think that those that got burned in in the in the dot com bubble are the the universe of folks who have you know fully embraced index funds and even more importantly, in this context, target funds, and and, and who have who have you know stopped trying to to time and care about the market and are and are relying on you know historical correlations to hold. And 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 I think that the the comeuppance that's that's I think at, at hand is the fact that many of them are are likely to be burned both in equities and, and in fixed income in, in the unwinding of this. Um, and so they're gonna find themselves unprotected again. And I think there they're going to be, there's gonna be a, a just a, a generational level of, of outright disgust and anger. And I, I think one of the things that will distinguish the lows in this crisis is the hostility that is aimed at um, financial intermediaries and corporations um, where where you know shareholder maximizing shareholder value um, becomes a ground for uh, condemnation, and, and and you know you you could even see a question of what what is the the reason to own stocks at all that that you know stock ownership has no utility value at the bottom of a crisis like this because people are so
0: pissed. Hundred percent. I read a book, and maybe I'm going off the rails here, but are you familiar with a book written uh, a few years ago? I think it was 2004, by by Ralph Keyes, The Post-Truth Era, Dishonesty and Deception in Contemporary Life. Are you familiar with this book? I, I'm familiar with it. I didn't, I've didn't. i not read it, but I'm familiar with okay. okay, well, let's just speak to the more general concept now, rather than the particulars of the book. This idea of the post-truth society, where I think it's generally... People that studied this talk about how dishonesty and deception and stretching the truth has become more of an accepted way of life, not for everyone in this room, but for too many people, unfortunately. And I can't think of any place where you see more of this than on the street. And the truth will be what the narrative tellers, the storytellers, make it out to be. And as long as you know the wine is flowing, liquidity is flowing and bro everything's going up but we're all good like you know what are you asking me for about these details and so the the blurring between truth and half truth or bold-faced lie you know people you speak about time preference it's one thing if you and I are analyzing a company that's got a you know it's a short duration asset, it's on ten times earnings, got a four percent dividend yield. But when you get into storytelling and you look at like the ARC portfolio, and I don't want to make this about Kathy, you mean my know my views on Kathy are well known. And you make up stuff, you literally make up stuff. You know, five years from now, it'll be like the Jetsons will all be flying around and flying cars and god knows whatever. And you know, if you drink enough or smoke enough weed, you, you know you can believe, or you have enough liquidity flow, you can believe anything. And so then, the burden of proof falls on the naysayers. It's like, what do you mean it's not true? Look, the stock's going up. You obviously don't get it. So, could you speak a bit? And you started touching this earlier about the extension of time frame, the the, the change in time preference. And you know, <laughs> if we're just going to kick everything down the road. Whether it's the Federal Reserve or it's Kathy Wood. I mean, you know, where stocks go down. Well, now they're gonna make twenty percent a year, then thirty percent a year, now they're really down, now it's gonna be fifty percent a year. And it's like people, and this gets into another problem, the ego. It's like, you know, you don't have a loss until you until I sell it. Yeah, right. Okay. And people don't admit that they're wrong. And if you crystallize or monetize the loss, that's kind of a slap in the face. So people getting bagged, you got bag holders, and Kathy just pumping it. And and you know and, and people just being in denial and holding on and so in particular you have this incredible phenomenon where you know the stock's down fifty, arcs down fifty percent this year. I think it's around fifty or thereabouts. It's down sixty or seventy percent from its peak, and yet she's had money net flow in. And so maybe talk a little bit about time preference and denial, which is not the name, as the joke goes, denial is not the name of a river in Egypt. And how this is just not healthy. This is very corrosive. So there's a whole bunch of questions there. How about it? All right. So time preference. It's more than time preference. Um, the, the
1: term I use is horizon preference. And, and it's a simple thought, which is when we feel intensely vulnerable, it's all about me here now. That the, you know, when the bear is about to attack us, there, there is no nothing we care about beyond the immediate moment, ourselves, and this specific location. The other end of the spectrum is sort of us everywhere forever, and you, you can think about that in terms of our interest in space and very futuristic technology and all of these wild, outlandish dreams, and, and it ties to our embrace of abstraction. So, at one end of the spectrum, we have these unlimited um, horizons that are abstract. And then the other one we have, you know, me here now and things that are tangible, real, you know, I, I got to hold it to know it's, 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 it exists. And, and, I, and I think it's been fascinating, um, you know, this has been a cycle where, you know, you've had, you know, charismatic, dominant, uh, determined figures um, who have been selling things that are at the very far reaches of the horizon. And, and you know, what, what is so interesting, and I, I've been very honest, this, is, this has been a golden age, a, a, an era of illusion, where, you know, you have people promising these, these amazing magic acts. And, and, and you've seen, as the, as the, the various magicians, you know, promise the two-headed lady, then she's got three, then six, then 12. And, you know, I, I would say in the last month, you know, she's got about 65 heads. But the, the wildness, the wildness that has to be on offer has just continued to get ramped up in order to sustain the, the frenzied crowd. And, and one of the things about these kinds of eras you go back to the 1960s, Is you have this this fascinating coincidence of magical thinking and conspiracy theories, cultish leaders. You know that this this environment where we throw out you know truth and science and accept astrology in its place. And, and I think we we've seen a lot of financial astrology in the, in this you know post banking crisis era and folks who are you know unbelievably willing to to sell it like you know like Gene Dixon you know did years ago i mean this is the the hype that has been promoted and accepted and tolerated has been extraordinary and i'd offer george i'm i'm not sure there's been a time in history that being a cultish figure has ever been more profitable and 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 the challenge with that is you know people who buy into that hype you know will never let go of it you know they they will ride it to the bottom the you know history suggests that these sorts of iconic figures have to be so brutally discredited that before people who are
0: their ardent followers capitulate? So Peter, it's, it's, <laughs> i don't want to make light of it, but you know, I, I as people know, I'm a little bit outspoken, and I've at times—and actually, I'm halfway serious about this—likened um, some of these characters to, you know, Reverend Jim Jones from uh, Jonestown aces is here. You he can talk about Guyana and following their leader. And just, there's like nothing you can do to dissuade them from their belief. And they'll, they'll, they'll go to their death in pursuit of that belief. And in this case, they'll ride Kathy down 90%. I mean, you know, what's the Kathy's down 60. What's the definition of a stock that's down? You know, seventy five. It's a stock which is down sixty, and then gets gets cut in half again. I got the, I not figured out that you know what I'm talking about, All right? I'm reminded of the the quote from Mark Twain. It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And so, we've all had the interesting experience, I would say, in my case, unfortunate experience of going into an AMC Apron. Peter, have you been in an AMC Apron? I, I have steered clear. I, I watch things from afar. <laughs> You're a smart man. So I went into one of these rooms, and I think Mark Cajotes was in there. And Mark's a serious guy, and he knows how to read income statements and balance sheets. And he went in there just trying to, like, teach them a little bit. And they're all convinced that there's a big squeeze going on in AMC and all this nonsense. Yeah, there was a squeeze a ago, but... It's a cold stock now. You can borrow all you want, I think. And there's no squeeze. But these people like w- went down this road. And it's unbelievable the stories that they tell them. This is sort of self-reinforcing, you know, circular um, firing squad. And there's like nothing you can do, nothing you can do to dissuade them from what they believe. And so maybe could you speak to Peter? the identity of people like that. I mean, it's one thing for you or I, or any of the, I would say more normal people in this room. Or I don't know. I want to stick my chest out too much and say I'm normal, but it's one thing for, you know, people who are an okay place in society who are not marginalized. They've got a job, you know, they, they feel they're in the, in the flow and the mainstream. It's one, it's one thing for one of those folks to buy crazy stock on a tip from a friend but it's a whole nother thing when you get into this sort of counterculture type thing where i mean like they live in another world and so you were talking about people outside the mainstream so could you talk a little bit about when someone becomes detached and becomes desperate like how does you talk about like horizon preference Like, they just mm-hmm. need to be, to be operating in a totally different orbit could you speak to that a little bit
1: yeah so so again when we feel intensely vulnerable we have five natural reactions two of them get a lot of prominence already we we think of them as fight or flight and you know those those are the the ones that get top billing but there there're three others one is we freeze and you and you see that often in in you know battle and environments like that where people are just cognitively overwhelmed the, the other two, though, I think are really
2: important
1: here and, and recognize that sometimes we combine them. The, the fourth one is follow, where we will, if we don't have certainty and control in our lives, we will gladly follow the person who suggests that they have their act together. And moreover, they have our back that that they feel our pain and they will do something to ensure that we regain our confidence again, and and you know, sadly, you know that's that is that environment is a a feeding ground for predators. You know, anybody who's been involved in a in a in a a, you know, a troubled relationship, um, you know, you. you it, these often are formed in these moments of extremely low confidence where people without any certainty and control are, are just happy to follow somebody in the belief that they, they can help them. I mean, we, we, we will gladly get in the car standing in the pouring rain when somebody offers us a ride. And that's, that's that phenomenon. And I think we've seen a lot of that we, you know in, in so many different dimensions in the last decade. And then the other, the fifth one is, you know, there are five F's, you know, freeze, follow, you know, fight, fight, flees, follow. And the last one is fuck it. Um, where we just say the hell with it all, you know, I, I'm out. A- and here it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting behavior because we will take pleasure in inflicting pain on others on our way out, that, that if we can stick it to the man, great. And, and so I think, you know, certainly post COVID, we've seen a, a, an environment of, you know, follow and fuck it uh, in an in, in, in intense way. And, and the, you know, when you think about who the, the personalities that have been leading the charge. You know, again, determination, domination, uh, charisma, they're they're very compelling to a crowd that, you know, wants to, you know, disrupt what exists and are, you know, folks are happy to to follow them, you know, into battle.
0: So, Peter, let's just generalize this a little bit more. We're kind of going all over the place, but it's really, really interesting. We take this conversation in many directions. And I do want others to join the conversation, please. So a lot of friends in the room, a lot of smart cookies. So please, if you want to uh, ask Peter a question, please raise your hand. Just to reset the room, we've got Peter Atwater, um, one of the leading experts in behavioral economics. He's at William & Mary. Um, really, really fascinating stuff. And, and Peter, um, just aside. If, aside from your Twitter feed, if people want to follow you, um, are there are there is there are there papers or books or anything or or, or if you don't want to draw attention to yourself, if people you just want to learn more about behavioral economics, are there any resources or anything that people or, or seminal books that if not written by yourself, others that you would recommend for people to read up on?
1: Yeah, so I I you know I do write stuff you know that that I post to LinkedIn. Um, I do some work with corporations and institutional investors, um, as, as you might imagine. Um, a lot of what I think is not well suited to a retail investor. Um, I I tend to be a highly contrarian, and I hate to see people spend money on things that they'll they'll never use. Um, but I, you know, I, I I do a fair amount of, of consulting. Um, Things I think people should read, Um, I I think anything that that Bob Prechter has written in the world of socionomics, I think is really valuable. I'm not an eliotician, which is, I think, how many people may be familiar with Bob. Um, So I I don't necessarily follow all the wave stuff. But I think thematically, there's some interesting things in the, the world of socionomics did help to tie together what we see, you know, in the financial markets and culture, in politics, in society more broadly. Um, Another, and and then a book that I want to give a shout out to, because I think it's really important today, is a book by Elder Shafir and um, Sindel Mullenathan called Scarcity. And And I just think that that book, it's a very quick read, helps to tie together a lot of the, the cognitive aspects of stress and, you know, when we don't have certainty and control. Um, and, and I'm going to give an early pitch for a book that I am about two-thirds of the way through that um, will be coming out at some point next year um, called The Deciding Factor, where I'm going to lay out all of these thoughts um, in a way that I hope is is cogent and coherent. Um, tying together you know the psychology the, the cognitive process and 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 how we how we ebb and flow in terms of our feelings of certainty and control and the impact that those have on on so much in our lives
0: It's terrific Peter thanks for that uh, Just again we've got Peter atwater um, this we're talking about why people do crazy things uh, I just no space would be complete without my once again, pointing out, reminding everyone that uh, you know we're doing these spaces, bringing to you first-rate thinkers, thought leaders like Peter. We're all doing this pro bono, gratis. No one's making any money from this. We're here teaching each other, learning. Uh, it's learn from each other. We have a real sense of community here. And you know we do this for nothing. I've asked folks to try to pay forward. We've dedicated the efforts of this room to Uh, World Central Kitchen which is doing God's work and providing I think now 300,000 meals a day to refugees in the Ukraine and so if you find these values to be of use, of utility please give generously to World Central Kitchen Uh, the donor form is in my Twitter feed I'll retweet it out we're really building a a tremendous amount of momentum we had only $63,000 in the till a few days ago because of a generous $50,000 leadership gift, a matching gift, uh, I think we're over 125000 right now. And, um, you know, so we're, we're well on our way to reach our goal of $200,000. we are doing something which really hasn't been done on Twitter before. It's really an experiment, and I'm really thrilled by how it's working out. So not only are we learning on helping each other, we're doing a good thing. We're, we're helping people in need. And I, I can't say it enough. So please, please, please give generously. So, Peter, um, coming back to people not wanting to admit that they're wrong, let's get away from. I mean, so the AMC Apes guys basically in GameStop, they're going to take it all the way to, they're going to go all, all the way, as Chris Berman would say in the ESPN Sports Center. But in terms of cognitive dissonance and people being honest with themselves, you could just speak more generally to the market. The idea that, okay, even if let's say one's bearish looking out the next few years, which I am, and I can go on to all the reasons why that regardless of one's view, this is not going to die that quickly. It's like the dream lives on. You had this Pavlovian conditioning by dint of QE and the most reckless expansive monetary policy in history where, you know, it gave rise to FOMO and Tina and BTFD and so on and so forth. And so, we've been conditioned to just buy every dip. And so it's not going to, so the dream's not going to die. The dream lives on. You got to believe it's like Tug McGraw, the 69 Mets. And so I take a look at some of these stocks, like Amazon just had horrendous numbers last week. Um, And you can just go down the list. And they were coming from such extreme, obscene levels of overvaluation. And also, people, if you know any rudimentary finance, they really were benefiting most from the relentless decline in interest rates. You know, it's a simple dividend, decision, You know, anyone who knows, study finance, or finance one-on-one text, you just take a valuation model and take the risk-free rate, say, from 1.5% on a 10-year treasury to a 30-year, and to, to, to 3%, and see what that does in your evaluation before you even get into whether the earnings outlook is, is not so great and the idea that, you know, valuations expand and contract with growth rates. It was all, again, I started to make a speech and a question, but I want to give it the proper context. So I look at the market and I'm like, damn it, let's just be done with it. Let's just, you know, take the S&P down, let the rates go up, let the Fed do this, that, whatever, and let's move on. But what I'm fearful of, what I actually think is going to be the case this time, is this is going to be a long, drawn-out affair backing and filling, chopping and flopping, and it's just going to grind people down. And if you go, for instance, look at the 2000-2002 bear market, John Rook has been in this room repeatedly, has pointed out that even though the market, even though the NASDAQ went down 80% from uh, top to bottom, on 46% of the trading days, the market actually rose. There were 10 counter trend rallies of 15%. 15 counter trend rallies of 10%. And so, I guess the question really is, Unlike every decline we've seen or correction we've seen the last few years, I think this one has staying power and I.e., goes down, but you don't get the full catharsis is because people don't know what else to do because they've bought all the story stocks for the long term. You know, I'm gonna if I sell, I got to buy back and I got to have to pay taxes and this, that and everything else. That's sort of like the old adage about, you know, how do you boil a frog? You know, you slow, you know, just turn the water up slowly. So the question I guess is coming out of this liquidity driven boom, this bubble that we've seen the way it's impacted people's attitudes towards markets and like, you know, number go up, bro, just wait. And maybe it's like the little boy that cried wolf. They got a one day the wolf will come like one day the market will, will go down and it won't come back. So how do people's attitudes towards, you know, getting back to even sticking with a loser um, how is that impacted by the fact this has gone on for so long? I mean, it's one thing. look, if you buy a stock, and it goes down right away. It's like, okay, I got it. I made a mistake. It's like, Mikey puts his finger in the socket. All right, that's not a good idea. But, you know, this is a more gradual chop and flop. I and mean, you know, the incredible thing is the S&P, the soundbite index is not down that much from the high. Of course, the internal damage of the market has been extraordinary. But the fact that the soundbite index is not down so much, a lot of people have indexed the thing, you have the soothsayer still telling you, uh, "Dream on." All the all the financial advisors, you know, I "Don't sell stocks for long term." Yada yada yada. Like it just kind of makes me think, wonder that maybe this is just going to be like water torture, just drawn out, and we're not going to get the cathartic collapse. So I don't know. Take 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 a stab at any part of that.
1: Yeah. So so the the analogy I would use in this is is COVID. Um, you know, threats that are abstract, we can keep at bay for a really long time. And so there is the scenario, George, where the, the threat of the market decline remains so abstract to people, such an existential threat that will deny it until we are forced to confront it, and 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 I think that 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 slow burn that you're talking about um, is the is the best case scenario. Um,
0: wait, 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 Stop, 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 stop! You think I don't, I'm? I make sure I understood it correctly. I happen to be bearish, but you know I entertain all different points of view, including points, of, including opposing points of view. I just want to understand, you're saying the slow burn, in your view, given where evaluations are on the fundamentals and all this kind of stuff, the slow burn, in your view, just make sure you understood this, is the best case scenario?
1: In terms of
0: how we handle the
1: decline, okay? If if confidence is going to continue to fall, that gradual acceptance as you know, a small group of people Grows slowly over time to accept the threat is the is the best case scenario for for this bear environment to play out. the the the, the less <laughs> the less, you know, and I don't think that's likely. By the way, um, I, I'm, I'm more concerned about a a COVID like repetition where a, a seemingly insignificant event like Tom Hanks getting COVID while he's in Australia causes confidence to evaporate immediately. And, and this is the thing about tipping points is they don't have to be significant. They just have to cause people to take this abstract distance thread and suddenly feel like it's right next to them. And so the, the, the consequence here is, is there, is there a, a similar tipping point that could exist where people wake up, you know, in the midst of the Masked Singer one night and go, crap, this is a market that's just gonna go down. In which case, you have everybody grabbing their cell phones at the same time to hit send or to hit sell. And, and, and you know, I, I think that the, 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 ex, the, the unwillingness to accept this as being a possibility, you know, to your point about people continuing to pour money into things that are 75% of their way down, cautions that there's been no meaningful capitulation yet and so we run the risk of something triggering mass capitulation at once don't to be clear don't want it don't wish for it but when you when you also consider that the the declines that we're seeing now are being matched by are being mirrored by political and social upheaval. I think there's a a potential that what triggers the market isn't interest rates rising or earnings shortcomings, but some other threat that we've, again, viewed as remote and abstract that becomes real that we say, whoa, that's going to impact the markets, everybody out now.
0: Wow. Peter, um, talking about the um, search for the uh, protagonist, you know, praise for the non-participants in the innocents. the central banksters, as, as they're called, Washington, <laughs> Goldman Sachs, that whole, that whole thing, um, they are clearly in the sights of the public. Inflation has become a widespread problem. The Biden poll ratings are down enormously. It's about the economy, and normally when it's about the economy, it's about jobs. But that's not the situation this time. We have a record number of unfilled jobs. It's more about the inflation. And coming back to the post-truth society, you know, the inflation number is completely bogus. This eight and a half percent CPI. If you just stop and think, everyone knows it. I mean, but just simple point. The owner's equivalent rent, which is 30% of uh, CPI, which in the most recently set of uh, inflation statistics, they, imp- they imputed only a 5% number. When is up 25%, so you just put in 20% and 30% of the index, that's a 6% delta on top of the 85 So those that say inflation's 12, 13, 15, yeah, I think that's right. Now, whether it's peaking and it's going to go down, it's a whole other discussion. But people know that, that the government the Fed, the authorities, the establishment, Goldman Sachs, like, they're not being told the truth. And you go on CNBC, and, you know, it is laughable now. You look at someone like Jim Cramer. There's a guy, he's a great follower. For anyone in the room, Peter, I don't know if you follow this guy. There's some guy called Inverse Cramer, at Inverse Cramer. He's hysterical. He can't make this stuff up. And what they do every day, the guy... Tweets out what Kramer's recommendations are and says you should do the opposite. And actually the performance is pretty good if you did that. But how does someone like how does CNBC not to pick on Kramer, there are others, but how I mean it is so outrageous. I mean, I, I want to like shoot myself in the head when I listen to this drivel. You know, the stuff is just imploding. And yet the band plays on. It's like it's like it's it's like the guy who Gets keep ke- getting rejected by one girl after another, and he just keeps going, undeterred. Like, and, and how it and maybe CNBC's ratings are collapsing. I, don't know. I mean, we have a lot of smart people in this room; they can come up and talk about it. But, like, why do people? Is it just people want to believe? They want to be told a good story. They want to have their, their 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 losing position told it's okay. You know, have 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 have, have, have their scorecard blessed. Like, how is it that? Some I actually I'm going to pick on Kramer. He deserves it. Okay. How is it someone like Jim Kramer still commands such an audience, given how disastrously the wrong things have gone?
1: Yeah, hey, I'm not going to I'm not going to pick on Jim directly, but let me just you know one of the you you said a few moments ago that the S and P really isn't down that much, and and I think one of the, the things that sustains financial television right now is that the, the broader mood of investors, I mean, you, you listen to what the private equity guys have been saying at Milliken this week, and you know, the, the, the universe of investor mood is remained reasonably high. And, and I think that, you know, individuals who are associated with the market, like, like Kramer is, his, his fate is tied to the markets. You know remember it at, at you know 20 within 24 hours of the low in 2009 that was when you know William and Mary grad John Stewart um you know took Kramer up one side and down the other and so I I think you know again if we see markets collapse the 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 favorability of of many of the figures in finance will will go along with it because we'll look for scapegoats. That's, that's what we do. And, and this is, this ties to one of the things you said, which is when we're making decisions where we have control, but no certainty, which is the nature of financial decisions. When they don't go right, we have a choice to either blame ourselves or blame others. And we're not particularly, um, Authentic in blaming ourselves. So, given the choice, we will look to blame others, and and that I think is a is a potential risk ahead. But I, I want to tie one thing back to your point about inflation, because I do think that that people in finance broadly underappreciate the plight of those at the bottom of the K-shaped recovery. I mean, as the the guy who coined that term, I wasn't talking about economics. I was talking about their level of of confidence, the certainty and control that they felt in their lives. And and I think we in the finance world underappreciate that there is a sea of people in the United States and more importantly, globally, who do not feel certainty and control in their lives today? And for whom, if conditions get worse, will
0: naturally revolt. It, 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 yeah, is that not the basis for the whole populist movement? And yeah. whether it's Boris Johnson or Le Pen or Trump or whatever, it's a universal problem right now. Isn't isn't that what the system's just not working for that people for those people? Isn't, mm-hmm. isn't that the case? Yeah, I mean,
1: I mean, the the work that I've done on that topic is people voted for the extreme candidate left and right where they felt worst. So, so this is this is an issue where if if you don't want extreme politics, you've got to address the certainty and control of those at the bot that those at the bottom now feel, um, and and many feel voiceless, powerless, and if we add food inflation to the mix, um, you you, you end up with a, a real problem. It's why why I think scarcity
0: is such an important book for people to be reading now. Thanks for that, Peter. Okay, so um, if you have a question for Peter, please raise your hand. I don't wish this was to be a discussion with Peter and myself. We're gonna go first to Three Aces and then we're gonna go to Alan Levinson. Three Aces, my friend good to good to see you. What's up, Peter? What's up?
3: Peter? Hey hey guys, hi George. Um hey Peter. Um I'll tell you what, you know, I've been practicing Buddhism for two decades and also been in the markets for three decades. Um, And of all the just absolute geniuses that uh, George has on the spaces, um, I'm gonna say that you're the most accurate of all of them. I mean, your work is the only thing that explains what's happening now, you know, with Kathy, with Tesla, with Bitcoin, micro strategies, even the market. Just look at the market today. You know, we could line up 15 of the smartest minds on on the planet who are regularly on this basis. And there is quantitative data after quantitative data after quantitative data that supports that this, this is absolutely absurd in every way imaginable. And it just keeps happening you know? So I want to say thank you for that, because you've taught me a lot. Um, and the last space that you were on here with George, um, what well, the, the message that I got, clearly, was the higher the confidence, the greater the abstractions. So here's my question. I got a question, George. Uh, my question is this, is that I put a chart in the nest there. And this is a very well known, you know, chart or a bunch of similar charts out there to where people in the past have tried to place human psychology or emotion on various stages of a cycle a boom and bust cycle so if the higher the confidence the greater the abstraction on the upside what are the characteristics on the downside is there a you know i i know that you you set the the, 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 the goalposts, you know, between, you know, confidence abstraction and me here now. But is there a similar sort of thing? Because what I like to look for is risk and identify change. So what could we sort of see as, you know, warning signs or, or postmarks along the way um, of this sort of confidence abstraction game ending? Thank you very much in advance.
1: Yeah, thank you for your, your kind words. Um, so I, I think if, the, if we have a spectrum, it ranges from invincibility at one end to defeated at the other. So as we continue to decline in, in our feelings of confidence, what you should expect are intensifying messages around powerlessness, and around uncertainty so a a feeling that investors have that that they don't know what's next and that they the the markets are are moving around them in a way that that leaves them feeling um powerless midstream um and, and and Associated with that ultimately may even be a sense of voicelessness, that, that nobody is hearing them, listening to them, caring about them as, as investors. Um, and and along with this, so so abstraction at one end and reality at the other, along the way, what we should expect to see is intensifying scrutiny and just a, a digging into everything to expose the bad Um, that that as sentiment turns we're going to start to talk about all these abstract ideas and their flaws and vulnerabilities and the things that they've exposed us to as far as risks so think about every story that we embraced as being positive we're going to turn on its own so you know and we we saw this in the in the 30s You know, in terms of all of that technology that made things easy for people in the 20s, we then said, yeah, but it's taken jobs and and we we can't have that anymore. So so those are the the migrations and narrative that I'm that I'm expecting to see Um, that that you you just that that sense that um, that I feel powerless and uncertain um, and and with that will come massive bankruptcies because that that is obviously in the financial space
0: what defines the low. To Peter, I want to ask you a follow-up to Ace's question. You spoke of the invincible, the ones who have an extreme degree of confidence on the one hand, and on the other hand, the defeated, the ones that are being thoroughly thrashed at the other. Which one is more dangerous in terms of what they might do i mean the false sense of confidence on the part of those who are winning winning bigly and then the desperados who are like what the heck let's just wing it all right they may make different types of mistakes but which one's more prone to making an error which one's more dangerous
1: so so the invincible don't pay any attention as they take too much risk and, and so they're, they're dangerous to your point earlier about, you know, allocating capital, giving them control of things. They're, they're going to drive the car off the, off the cliff, you know, smiling and drinking, drinking along the way. The, the other thing I would note about the invincible is if they are not mentally healthy, instead of being generous, they will be vindictive. They will seek revenge at that point. Um and it it's something that whenever I see individuals who are um, invincible um, it is fascinating to see their mental health expose itself um, in terms of the, the nastiness that comes out. you know if if I'm because invincible is is I have certainty and control forever that, that there's an extrapolation of, of the time horizon of, of all of them into, infinity that goes along with that. And so you, you see some wild things. Um, So, so they're dangerous in that regard. Similarly that the hopeless and powerless are dangerous, particularly when those feelings are widely shared. So if, if you want to see an Arab spring or a, a panic cell, it's because those those it, those feelings are are widely shared. And, and more so, what will mark the bottom is a sense of, of time extrapolation, that again, that hopelessness and uncertainty will go on forever, that there's no potential to for a rebound. Therefore, I must take it upon myself to do something about it. And and it will be dramatic. It will be impulsive. Because at that point, we have no system to abstract thought
0: capability. It's, it's pure adrenaline. So Peter, um, you don't have to, Jackson, hold on for a second. Uh, you don't have to touch this one, um, but I have to tell you, listening to you talk about the Almighty and how their emotional health comes out through their behavior and the more emboldened they become. I couldn't help but think about a certain illustrious CEO of the biggest electric car company in the world (laughs) and some of his shenanigans. And I don't know if you want to speak about him or we'll just leave it, but I would just, I just find it interesting to just listen to your words, they're still echoing my head and just observing how he operates is anything you want to say there or you'd rather not get individual personalities
1: so so the thing i would say is for corporate leaders you have an easy invincibility mesh you know barometer which is their stock price um or or the price of what's important to them um i think one of the most unsettling um calls that I provided to my clients, and it required lots of explanation, was the, the killing of Mr. Khashoggi, um, which I I talked about in, in real time, but you can go back and look at the charts, marked in a, a major peak in oil prices. And, and it was, you know, and, and I've looked at other similarly distasteful events involving other um, global political leaders and and it's you know if if what matters to you is in abundance and you feel invincible and you're not a particularly nice person, you will do wild things. But you know to your to your point, um, I would just say that for those who are you know how invincible is Elon Musk, look at the stock price of Tesla. Look at his his net worth.
0: Right. Okay. Let's go to, thank you for that, Peter. Let's go to Alan Levinson. Alan, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Hi, George.
4: Hi, Peter. Um, First of all, thank you for your perspective on investor psychology. It's a topic that I have been delving into for a long time and your perspective is very helpful. So just going along those lines, I have followed and read Robert Prechter for many, many years I remember a book called Where Are the Customers Yachts? Um, and I remember handing out a hundred copies of Extraordinary Extraordinary Popular Delusions and The Madness of Crowds by Dr. Charles McKay. So that gets me to I cannot relate to these people. I just I just I struggle to relate to them. I I read all I listened to you, I've read these books. I still can't get in their minds. I don't understand the concept of FOMO. And let's go into me. I find myself very confrontational with these AMC apes. That's probably my mental illness. So that's my question: Is what's wrong with me?
1: No, I, I think it's really hard um, to watch crowd dynamic play out, and I, and I, I try to be very non-judgmental. Um, I don't believe people make stupid choices. I think they make choices that they've rationalized, um, you know, probably not in especially wise ways, but, but we all do that. I mean, we're, we're all susceptible to that. Um, You know, what I, what I would say has been the most helpful to me in this process is to be able to look objectively at, at behaviors, and say, okay, what is, what are these behaviors just saying about what people are doing? I'm not going to judge the behaviors, but what do they say about somebody's level of of control, somebody's level of certainty in their life? And 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 I think that being able to step back and just say, okay, this behavior tells me this. It's you know, it's sort of like a a, a um, you know a blood pressure measure on, on, you know, the human condition. Um, because I do think that we do things differently at different levels of, of confidence. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, Alan.
4: No, 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 no. That, that, that's good. The one question that I constantly ask all of them that I can't fathom in my mind and I still can't, is I say to them, and they never have an answer for me, how does it not concern you That 100% of all insiders are sellers of this stock for the past two years. They sell as much as they legally can, as fast as they legally can. And does that not concern you? Now, I grew up in the Bronx with a lot of very uneducated people. But if they saw that the insiders were only selling a stock, they would feel like suckers if they were the buyers. So I just don't understand how it doesn't even concern them. I can't get my hands around it. And that's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I
1: would just say this is an environment of, of intense, magical thinking. And, and there, the, the, the parallels of behavior to the late 60s, early 70s, I have found to be really helpful to just say, you know what? I, I'm not going to try and understand why they think this way. But I'm going to accept that that when people are in this in this mood, magical thinking is just going to go along with it. And there really is no point in trying to to argue a counter side. You know, facts don't matter.
4: Thank what? you very much. And just uh, my last comment is, I think this uh, ends pretty soon, that we will see new lows pretty soon.
0: Alan, I'm from your mouth to God's ears, Um Okay, so we have a couple of people. We have uh, a couple of people who want to speak. Before we do that, I'd like to uh, have Carol Strone, who um, has is helping us out enormously. She's spearheading the whole philanthropic efforts for us in terms of benefiting World Central Kitchen, and I think it'd be useful to have Carol speak a little bit about what it is exactly World Central Kitchen is doing, why they're so special, some of the challenges that they're facing and how we really can make a difference by helping them. So, Carol, good to see
5: you. What's up? Good to
6: see you. I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Peter, for your incredible remarks, which have inspired me to do a lot more reading. Um, but, But first off, for those of you who don't know what World Central Kitchen does, it feeds people in a crisis, flood, fire, earthquake, now war, and it's as simple as that. And I also think it's worth noting again, we've, we've mentioned it in other spaces, why we chose World Kitchen, given all the other charities that we could have chosen. So for starters, they have a business model that enables them to be among the very first responders and to scale up quickly. And what that means is going local from the start. You know, they partner with local chefs, farmers, truckers, warehouses to repurpose whatever they can on the ground And then they bring in whatever else is needed that they have to from the outside. Um, Second, their mission mission includes responding to man-made disasters, such as war, not just natural disasters. And the problem is that a lot of charities either can't, because their mission is too limited, or they won't, because they don't want to put their people in harm's way, go into war zones. So... The World Central Kitchens of the world, and they're not alone, there are many other organizations on the ground, um, they're literally risking their lives, unarmed, untrained for war. And the third thing, and there are many other reasons I could give, but these are the top three, They World Central Kitchen is extremely good at using social media to tell a good story, a good story about what they're doing on the ground and in real time. If you look every day at Twitter, they've got amazing um, you know, amazing tweets and amazing video, amazing photographs. And that ability to tell a really good story not only inspires us to give, but it also inspires us to be ambassadors for World Central Kitchen, which brings me to our $200,000 goal and why we chose it. Um, part of it is that we're super competitive George is super competitive. We're super competitive as a community. And we want to set the record for a single crowdsourced fundraiser for the work that World Central Kitchen is doing in Ukraine. And the record that I'm told has been set so far was 180,000. So we're on track to beat that this month and going to Peter's comments about speed. I didn't think we'd get here this quickly, but I think we're gonna do it within two months or shortly few days after two months. Um, And that said, I still want to reiterate that participation matters more than any amount you can give. $5, $10, anything is great. Because in the end, what we really want to be able to say is that we've all joined together in Georgia spaces as a community to fight the good fight so that hungry people may eat. And it's just as simple as that. And maybe going to Peter's remarks, Maybe that's our way of feeling like we have just a little bit of control over the destiny of our fellow human beings who are suffering in such extreme uncertainty. So I yield the floor back.
0: Thank you, Carol. Very, very well well said. And you know, Carol spearheaded our, our effort here. If you have any questions, um, we have a link. I, I did retweet it out. You can go to her Twitter feed or mine. Um, some folks have had you know they work for companies where there's matching gift programs etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we're really building the momentum and for another space but you know carol has spoken about how uh, philanthropy generally has not been it's it's early days for social media and haven't really figured out the way to tap into social media and so what we're really doing here um is an experiment and we're kind of at the cutting edge and it's really been uh, tremendous to see the feedback, the outpouring of support that people have had. And Carol's totally right. It's, it's, it's participation that counts. We are building a community. Um, and so, again, Carol, thank you very much for everything that you do. We really couldn't do this without you. So I thank you uh, profusely. Um, okay, so let's move on. Let's go to, um, we're going to do Don't Say We Didn't Tell You, and then we're going to do Paul. So Don't Say We Didn't Tell You. The floor is yours. Please unmute yourself.
7: Hi, George. Thanks for your time. Peter, same as you. Thanks for your time today. I've just got a comment and a quick question, if you can just answer that for me. So the comments on my side, uh, I totally agree with you. There's a lot of people within the stock market who's not going to let it go down. So in my eyes, I can't see ever seeing the U.S. stock market in a serious uh, correction or ever going down substantial amounts just because it is the US economy that's the way I see it the S&P 500 right now is the US economy it's got everyone's 401k it's got everyone's pension in it so and if it ever ever did go down the Fed is always there as a backstop we've seen it in the uh, financial crisis we've seen it during COVID so I feel like that's the game that we're all playing we know that worst case scenario if it ever happened the Fed would always come and step in and save our ass. So that's the comment. So I just, in my in my opinion, I can never see it going down. It's like anything that would scare people off the market or remove their money from it because there's just so much money invested in it, whether it be from people from England, people from Africa. Everyone is right. in the S&P so, 500, yeah. mate.
0: Yes, yeah, so, but I, do you have a question or we thank you for the comment? Do you have a question?
7: question is uh so uh, regarding the question is i've seen the fed today uh raise 50 basis points for peter that's the question for you i just want to see as the stock market rallied from that 50 basis points when j pal is trying to stop the economy from uh heating up what is his next move do you think what how would he attack it so,
0: so if you don't mind i'd like to keep the conversation on point that's a fine question but Peter's time is very valuable, and I I think that question is best asked a little bit later on. So if you don't mind staying on stage, we'll get that a little bit later. But I don't want to keep Peter here all night, so if you don't mind, we're going to pass on that question. Um, So let's go to Paul. Paul, welcome. What's up?
8: Paul, please unmute yourself. Thanks for hosting the call, George, the three aces. Thanks for being here, Peter. Thanks, Carol. That was really informative. Um, I've been following uh, a lot of what's going on. On on the great starvation, things that are happening in the world. So I appreciate your comments. Um, I I have a question, but I, I just want to address Alan for a second. So, well, first of all, I'll give you a quick background. I mean, I'm 60 years old. I have and I'm nowhere near any of your guys' level of what you guys do for investing. I'm from Canada, and my 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 investing was basically um, buying mutual funds and and doing uh, you know monthly. Uh, money in and dollar cost averaging kind of thing and that worked out well for me in the future so i am a holder of amc and gme but i also hold overstock and a few others and so alan you were talking about when the insiders sold i i was very disappointed in that and um outside the paul,
0: paul, paul i'm gonna to have to interrupt is there okay. a question, is there a question for you yeah a
8: question? here's yeah here's my question okay so I, I was I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about and you guys were bringing it up about the um, about the markets going down and this particular gentleman was saying that with the only thing that's really kind of supporting it right now is pensions pension funds in Apple stock and once they start pulling out they were suspecting the markets will start to collapse at that point is that something you would foresee or is there anything wrong with that again that's a question I, I think we it's not really i don't peter if
0: you want to take a stab at that otherwise i think it's a question best left for when we're when we're talking a a different thread in this room peter do you have an answer to that otherwise i will pass on it yeah i I don't really
1: have anything of of expertise to add on that
0: no okay that's fine um okay so uh oh my good friend ys is here we're gonna let him uh, weigh in uh ys good to see you what's up my
9: friend Hi, thank you for the spaces and thank you, Peter. I have a quick question. How do you think social media affects basically the coordination and possibly amplification of the dynamics that you're looking at? In other words, uh, does it make it more dramatic? Does it prolong it? Does it make it a completely different ball game compared to, let's say, the year 2000? Um, Just one quick comment afterwards. We do see people mostly posting their wins, encouraging each other. almost like a school of fish, basically directing their own path forward, even if it's going in the wrong direction. Um, So this is my question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things on social media. Um, There may not be a better technology for me here now thinking than things like Twitter. So recognize that social media... And our use of it is a a great reflection of of our mindset. Um, I think that related to that is the ability to connect people um, quickly. And and I do think its potential impact and the speed at which markets move is underappreciated. And particularly the speed at which market moves then move right back into the real economy and affect real decision making you know when you start to think about commodity prices being being impacted by investors talking on twitter investing you know moving price but you know the 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 thing that i think we also need to appreciate with with all social media is that it is also reflecting the balkanization that is happening more broadly. We are are finding um, more like-minded cohorts and we are tuning out those that don't think in the same way we do, don't agree with us the way they do. And so I think rather than looking at social media as a a single platform, I think even something like Twitter we need to consider is a series of, of very... Um, heavily walled echo chambers Um, and, and the consequences of that, I don't think we're, we're fully um, appreciative of, but you know, the, the, the notion, I don't think we can talk about social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and like as being a, a single in a single environment today, as much as it is, um, thousands and hundreds of thousands of small echo chambers that are moving impulsively and aggressively among its among the participants.
0: Peter, that's really well said. And I just wanted to pile on and take that concept that you just articulated and then consider we've been in this distorted Frankenstein type of a market where cost of capital has been zero, and prices are untethered. There's been no price discovery. So if a narrative emerges in one of these cohorts, let's just say it's the AMC Apes, they decide to have a run at something. And given the rise of passive management and the decline of active management, there isn't the usual force there isn't you know, a Stan Druckham or Lee Cooper or somebody to say, okay, well, sold to you, I'll short it. Or there's not as much as a, a biggest sellers as there used to be. And so you combine this balkanization, that's a very good term, along with prices, it's sort of like zero gravity, prices are just free to float up. And, and social media, where prices can move very quickly, it creates a totally different type of market than what we're used to. It seems to me a market where you're much more prone to excesses and you're much more prone to getting hurt. What would you say to that? Peter, please unmute yourself. Peter, we can't hear you. Hello? Shrub, can you hear me, Shrub? Yeah, I can hear you, George. George. Yeah, or maybe I don't know where Peter went. So, sure, maybe you want to talk or ask a question. I know Peter. Peter needs to mute himself. I don't know
9: what's going yeah. on. Anyway, look, uh, George just building from what you said. Actually, um, I remember. You know, this industry has uh, idols, and it brings them down. That's what it does, right? So, you have the. You, you know, Ponzi himself was an idol, and then he was brought down this time round. And maybe I'm wrong about this. It seems like the idols. Um, seems seem to be hanging on after they lose people money. So, for example, look at Cathy's down 60 70%. She's still idolized by people. She's getting inflows. So, and, you know, Chamath, no one sued Chamath and he blew up so many people. Uh, let's not get to every single name out there. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of them that are idols having lost a lot of money for people. So I'm just wondering, is this... A current cycle phenomenon because I don't remember that in the previous cycles. That's the first question. And the second thing is, is it like a Stockholm syndrome for these investors, or are they just masochists, or is it just a gambling mentality? Because you know, gamblers sometimes they just play until they lose. So, right, Pete, I'm just right, baffled yeah,
0: shrub, by this. Yeah, shrub, great. We got. To yeah, back. Sorry, sorry about to that. answer what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Peter, why don't you take shrub's question first? Then we'll go back to my question.
1: So, uh, sorry about that. I, um, I lost my train of thought.
0: All right, okay, okay, okay. So, Shrub, do you just want to repeat the question for Peter?
9: Yeah, sure, Peter. Um, the question is, is there like a form of um, Stockholm Syndrome for investors? Because they seem to idolize people that have lost them a lot of money and they just stick to them. So, I'm giving the ARK example because it's simple. You know, a fund that's down 70% getting inflows and still getting idolized Means that the investor is either having Stockholm Stockholm syndrome, or he's a gambler, or he just likes the pain. So you know, and, and is this a new is, is this a phenomenon of the current cycle? Because I remember in the other cycles we we used to kill idols uh, pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, I I I
1: think this is just a an environment where um, you have these these individual these these figures um who have generated such strong followership that and and have utilized these these echo chambers to a point where you you can't bring a counterpoint into the conversation um you you can't bring facts into the discussion because the 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 mindset doesn't allow for that, and and I, um, I you know, I, I just I, the, the the parallels, um, and I and it, it's going to offend people, but the, the parallels to cultism, um, the behaviors there are are really clear, um, and and the the predatory
0: nature of, of of these groups. That's wow, wow, just wow, Peter. So the question I had asked before we had technical difficulty was that the combination of the um, social media, which allows for a balkanization of the investor class so people can fall into their own little groups and then they have a cause. So they decide to buy AMC or they want to buy Kathy or whatever it is. But the Use of social media so people can marshal their forces in a more direct and specific way. In combination with cost of capital being zero, so prices are completely untethered from any sense of fundamental value. It's as if we're in a zero gravity environment. That those t- to, and and, and, and then this the social media component causing everything to speed up. But doesn't that all conspire to create an environment where things just move much more quickly rapidly and it's a lot it's, it's much easier to get hurt that it, it, it's just setting up conditions that we have never quite seen before
1: yeah i i think that it it sets up environments of of Real antagonism. You know one of the things I think older investors think of is you you think of the the bullish crowd and the bearish crowd and, and and investors having a relatively homogeneous sense of of feeling. and 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 I don't think that's the case today. I think there's in today's investing environment, there's a massive amount of zero sum thinking where, you know, it, you made money at my expense, you know, I lost money at your expense. And, and I think that, that I, I'm not sure I've, I've ever witnessed a, an investment environment where um, there's such antagonism um, between who was, who was on what side
0: of the trade. 100%, 100%. Hey, Peter, uh, we're going to go to Jackson in one second, but just a follow-up question. Do you think if we could go on the Wayback Machine, if we could be in Amsterdam in the time of the tulip bulb mania, or the South Sea bubble, to remind people, you know, back in the day when voyages were being financed to go to the New World, and Peter, you'll correct me, many times they would uh, assemble a consortium um, to fund these uh, voyages, and you know the investors or the shareholders would get some of the spoils on the return of the of the vessel. And I remember it was like the maybe it wasn't the first blank check companies, but it was, it's again in that in that great book that Alan Levinson mentioned, Ex- "Extraordinary Illusion: The Madness of Crowds." And I remember it was one of the voyages where I think it was so secret that they didn't tell anybody where they were going, and that just had the effect of making the deal even hotter. And so. You think these blank, for those of you that think these crazy blank check companies are something new invented in the 21st century, I got news for you. Uh-uh, there ain't nothing new under the sun. But my question to you, Peter, is if we were, do you think, going the way back machine, based on what you've read, if we were to go talk to those investors in the South Sea bubble or people who bought Dutch tulip bulbs or John Law of the Mississippi Land Rush, do you think we'd find very similar? behaviors and attitudes, obviously they didn't have Twitter and then have the internet and information move much more slowly. But do you think it's pretty much the same basic problem? It's just been amped up with the of technology and therefore it's, you know, we're seeing it on steroids or do you think it would be different?
1: I, 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 I think it would be
0: different in, in one respect. You know,
1: this post 2009 crisis has its genesis in people being pissed. Um, And I think that that plays into a lot of the disruptive technology we've seen and the the sort of stick it to the man mindset that has preceded a lot of this, as well as the the willing culpability that the crowd plays in this. Um, You know, if there's an environment that feels more familiar to me historically it's the 1830s. Um, you know, which was the area of the era of Barnum. Um you know, there's a there's a there's a underlying um bitterness to this that I is the reading that I've done on on things like the tool of bulb mania, I didn't I didn't sense that. I that that to me I sense madness, but I didn't sense there there's an
0: edge below the veneer on this one interesting one one question before we go to jackson one question i forgot to ask you about we're all familiar with the dunning kruger effect um at least most of us are so can you just explain to people what the dunning kruger effect is and uh in particular how it's very dangerous for these new investors who have only known this market, and therefore are really setting up for a huge fall because of a sort of false sense of confidence that they've, they've gained from their early success.
2: Yeah, I mean, it,
0: you know,
1: this this has been an, an era where um, we it's been easy to overestimate our ability. Um, that the not only have people been lucky. But the luck has been relentless um, because of the 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 work that the Fed has done in trying to promote the economy that they have they have lifted all ships effortlessly, and so I do think that this is you know maybe maybe the the biggest bubble of all is is in in luck itself, um, but but you see this playing out in. Um, a lot of the sports betting that's going on and people betting you know wildly on on parlay bets and things that have very low probability. But because I do I do think there is a we we've we've made it appear and, and I think financial television plays a role in this of making lucky people
0: believe they were skillful. Wow. Really good point. Uh, Jackson, you had a question, my friend, for Peter? Jackson, uh, unmute yourself, please.
2: Yes, sir. Thanks for having me, guys. Peter, I just wanted to touch and piggyback kind of on what we've all been bouncing around. I don't think that we're anywhere near the psychological precipice for a change in order for these investors and the crazies um, from the ZERP environment to actually take a dose of reality. Nothing's happened yet. I mean, we're all kind of getting ahead of ourselves, I think. We've got a long way to go. Earnings um, are just starting to show weakness. I think it's going to get a lot worse. Um, nothing's translating, as everyone in here has heard me go over and over and over. Again. Do you think we're anywhere near a psychological precipice where things actually change?
1: Um, left in their own? No. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that you know there's still no... Um, it's going to take an awful lot of convincing to move this crowd. Um, having said that, I and, and watched what took place with COVID, um, we can go from being complacent to being um, panicked without a material event triggering the difference. And, and so I think that the the question comes down to you know what what is something that could trip the 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 impression that you know stocks have value that that the markets have value um and and I think that given the backdrop politically socially and the like I I think we need to People need to think more broadly than than corporate earnings in the Fed. There, there's a lot of, of moving pieces geopolitically and and certainly socially and politically here in the U.S. that, that could be precipitating events um, that, that bring the markets into them.
0: Thanks, Peter. Peter, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, we're probably going to go on for a while, but don't feel you have to stay here. I mean, there are plenty more questions for you, so... I mean, I, you've been extremely generous. I, I didn't even expect to I mean, I thought maybe stay for an hour, hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes. So do not feel obligated to stay. Um, We'd love for you to stay, but um, please, you, you, you've done more than your fair share. So, um,
1: can, can I leave people on a more optimistic note? Please, please. Um, so, so two points of optimism. One is to tie back to Carol's thought Um, nothing boosts your confidence more than volunteering. Um, It gives you an ability to demonstrate that you have certainty and control in something. And so on a day that you are feeling um, anxious and and concerned about, you know, you don't feel confident, go do something nice for somebody else because volunteering will demonstrate that. The, The other thing that I would say is, if you are at all entrepreneurial in this environment, because certainty and control are in such short supply, we are incredibly grateful to those who can provide it when we have a problem. And I think that there may be no better time than this environment to look around and say, where do people have problems? and how do i create a business enterprise to address them because as i said we are we are in just with so little control and little certainty that we feel we're very interested in finding
0: people who will solve these problems for us peter that is absolutely brilliant and um just chuckling to myself because i'm up to a couple things which some people in this room know about and we'll see as a matter of fact you know not to blow my own horn but i'm the most unlikely social media personality this room just started sort of as a joke you know i only discovered Twitter spaces last fall i didn't like what i was hearing so i decided i'd try my own space and it's not because i'm smart maybe i maybe i'm not but it's because I got a lot of experience and I know a lot of people we've managed to put these rooms together and it's become quite um, quite a sensation only because we've got such incredible speakers such as yourself. I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your backside, but we truly have, you know, the best speakers, the best content, I think probably the best moderation, if I may say so myself, and the smartest audience. Because people they're 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 hunger they're hungry for the truth. They they they, they, they they're being tired of being fed all the nonsense from the street and whatnot. And so the fact, I mean, this room, I can't thank you enough for coming here. I, I echo what three aces said a while ago. This has probably been like, you know, the best room, or certainly the, one of the best rooms I've ever had because of the content matter. I've learned so much today. Um, you know, I fully expect this will be here by tens of thousands of people when it's all when it's all said and done. So I, I can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. I hope you'll consider coming back, we've all learned a lot. I hope it's been enjoyable for you. And uh, thank you for supporting the cause. So, Peter, um, dismissed, and we're gonna carry on here, but three, three, uh, I appreciate it, George. Thank you very much. Yeah, th- thank you, Peter. Take care. Yep. We're gonna keep Bye-bye. on going, but um, Peter has done more than his fair share. So um, let's go. I'm sorry we couldn't go longer, but Peter was, I mean, my God, he's given us an hour and 45 minutes of his time. Let's move ahead. We've got a few more questions. I think I'm probably going to wrap this up at 6 p.m. Eastern, trying to limit these rooms a little bit. Let's go to uh, Kevin, and then after Kevin, we're going to go to Audrey. Kevin, uh, welcome to the stage. Please unmute yourself.
10: Hi, George. Uh, Thanks for having me again. Um, I really – it's more a comment than a question. Uh, Unfortunately, I missed Peter. I I came late today. Uh, But I um, I did sense a bit of a tone in the room. And uh, the, the tone being that for those of us that like to look at fundamentals and think about what the hell's going on, um, a few thoughts on that. I mean, I do believe we're still in a bear market here and I will keep that uh, as my position until a new high is put into it. And of course, those of us that have been around for a long time will know that, you know, again, face ripping rallies are something that we face. But my, my comment is really this, um, as a lot of us have talked about, Um, I think the flows are a big issue here. And I know Shrub points this out frequently. Um, My thinking here is along the lines of what Michael Green had to say some time ago, uh, where we talked about the passive money, um, the fact that people are still employed, there's still money going into their 401ks, they're still going into pension funds. And what I'd like, I guess if I were to form this into a question, I'd be curious to hear uh, from those that do manage passive money, in uh, particular those that are measured to benchmarks, a relative return mandate versus an absolute return mandate. My, uh, my career was always around an absolute mandate. And I can say that, that my, and you having done both relative, I assume, and absolute mandates yourself, um, I, I think to myself sometimes, I think as a passive manager, I find a lot of these guys, uh, whether they're actual, um, uh, shall we say complete benchmarkers or closet benchmarkers? Um, I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, people don't sit on cash and I think the cash is still coming into the market as we've seen with the flows. And I think, at the end of the day, I think we all know where this thing's going. I think that just a lot of us that fun, think about the fundamentals, uh, don't appreciate that it's going to take us longer to get to where it is that we're going. And we ultimately, I think those of us that have been around a long time, uh, and have seen a lot of things know exactly where we're going and that's down. Um, so I, I guess, again, if I were to formulate it into a question, my question would be to those that do manage passive money, um, you know, am I wrong? <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. No, you.
0: yeah, I know. Kevin, thanks for that. And if you heard my comments earlier, you know, the dream lives on. Four-year bull market doesn't end. Just go out with a bang. Um, it's going to take a while to kill this thing. Michael Green,
3: hey, uh, good friend. Hey, George, hang on. Garbaz, look down by the speaker. I sent you an invite like three times. Just push the button and you can come in. Sorry. All right. Okay. Gar- hold it so it's going to take a while to,
0: for this market to die, because um, as Michael Green, a good friend, is points out, because of the passive bid. Um, so, you know, I actually think what would probably be the most frustrating. If you said, if you said to me, you know, I think it was Walter Dean who said, "The market's going to do whatever it can to frustrate and confound the largest number of people." Probably the most Machiavellian thing the market could do is just chop and flop, up, down, up, down, up, down. Maybe just a seesaw grinding the downward trend. And just when it just looks like the bottom's going to fall out, as it did a few days ago. It rallied. And now it rises back up. I was like, ooh, and so you're saying there's a chance, and up and down and up and down. And so thanks for that. Let's move on. Um, I want to do – and Jeff will get to you, but there's a few people ahead of you. I want to do uh, uh, Connor followed by uh audrey followed by cold pizza um so connor please unmute yourself welcome to the stage and connor disappeared so let's go to audrey audrey please unmute yourself audrey
5: hi um hi george i want to thank you last night for the great uh show with michael belkin and three aces thank you for last night too i stayed up really late fell asleep listening to you that was a really good one so um I, I had a question for Peter, but thank, I mean—but thankfully, Shrub actually answered it. Um, but I wanted to make a comment, and then I had another little question. So the first thing I wanted to say to the gentleman in the room who said that the Fed has our back, I have to very much disagree. My dad committed suicide during the dot-com crash. So the pain that people are going to feel is going to be unreal um, in, you know, the coming months or however long it takes before this crash actually happens. But, um, I want, I I was going to ask Peter, this was my question for Peter is like, because we're going through what seems to be like a mass psychosis in the markets, but also in like the politics and in everyday life, I wanted to see what, what we could do to break that up. So like a mass psychosis example would be like, you talked about like the, the Dutch tulips or like the witch hunts. Like what breaks those sort of things up? Oh yeah what-
0: Audrey, let me interrupt. I think Peter what Peter was saying and three Aces, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean these guys are gonna go down with the ship. It's gonna take like a complete schmicy These guys are just not gonna give it up. It's like what you're saying is very sensible, Audrey. You want to have an intervention? I just mm-hmm. don't, I just don't think it's I don't think it's possible. I mean, I and anyone else who's been in an AMC apes room would tell you flat out these people are beyond help. I mean, three aces. Do you want to say something about this?
3: Yeah, I mean, hi, Audrey. Thank you for hi. the kind words as well. Hi, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear about your father.
5: Oh, it's fine. Um,
3: yeah, um, it's
5: just, it's just, I feel for the people that are going to get hurt so bad in the future here. So, yeah,
3: no, I got it. I was one of them in 2000. Escobar's. He was sitting there front row. Um, yeah. So, um, so you know, it's a con, right? Confidence is is a con Mm -hmm. that's all it is it's a con job okay right Mm -hmm. and and the opposite of confidence is humility which is why that night on the spaces with tommy uh george i was saying this is exactly what peter's talking about right because right so so underlying the con in this case you know the corner you know the 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 four horsemen are all frauds right Mm -hmm. Uh, you know uh bitcoin uh micro strategies Kathy Wood, Tesla. Right. Those are the those have been the huge abstractions of this cycle. Right. So so the the theory is, is the greater the confidence, the higher the price, the greater the abstraction. Right. And and right. And so the opposite of that um, is, you know, collapse. So, right, and it's not just with those four frauds, it's politics with the media, right? It's even today, even today, George has the, 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 the collection of analysts that George has from Jeff Garbaz to, you know, everybody, too many names. These people aggregately are paid $100 million a year by the top hedge funds and portfolio managers in the world just for their advice, their analysts, their buy side researchers. George brings them on here for free. One chart after one discussion, after one quantitative analysis after the next, right? Trying to put a rational analysis on an irrational thing. Right? Mm -hmm. And look at today. Look at today. We we have a quarter of negative GDP growth. We we're in a quarter that's arguably negative. Where Europe is melting down. Okay, rates are rising. Liquidity is being siphoned out of the system, and the con marches on. So, so right. Sorry. Sorry.
5: Oh, real quick. So my question is is I guess when you have all these really smart people on, when they're looking at the technical, are, are they looking at the technicals at those fundamentals,
0: Sorry, my dad. I accidentally hit the mute button. I'm sorry about that. So, uh, Audrey, keep speaking. You can speak now. I hit the mute button by accident. Unmute yourself, Audrey.
5: Okay. Sorry. Um, so, my kind of my other question was: you, you're bringing all these, you know, superstars on, and you've got like Michael Belkin, or you've got, you know, Paul Tudor Jones saying, you know, I don't want to be long stocks or bo- or bonds or anything. Do you think it's more the the technical fundamentals they're looking at or do you think it's more the macro that they're looking at they're looking at the fact that there's going to be a famine you know like 20 percent famine is i mean we're, we're at 20 percent excess money in um for like a normal american household for their amount yeah. of food purchases so
3: so audrey audrey do me a favor scroll go to george's youtube channel and i want you mm-hmm. to watch the presentation that he and john roke put on at the cmt it was about a week and a half ago there is no better current piece of research that touches all four corners of the room from a quantitative and technical macro and sentiment analysis of where we are right now you will not you, you could write a check for five million dollars and won't find that a piece of research that relevant to
5: what, what, hey, what's a hey, 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 hey,
0: three A's is easy, boy. Thanks for the compliment. But no, thank you. I'll watch yeah. it. All right, thanks. For, th- thanks for thank the question. You. Thank you. I want to move on. We're gonna do cold pizza and then we're gonna do Jeff Garbaz. Cold pizza, what's up?
11: Hello, George. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm a, I'm a I fall into the younger camp. I should probably be in one of those, uh, you know, AMC ape rooms, but uh, you know, I'm t- I tend to be a, a contrarian. Um, but I guess you know what you spoke about with Peter. Um, it's really interesting, the whole psychological aspect um, and the concept of narrative economics. I think today I saw Elon Musk make his profile picture, Bored Ape Yacht Club. Um, and so that's an NFT. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this uh, concept, but um, I think it's pretty uh, notable um, in terms of, um, you know, peak narratives and froth in the markets and eco chambers um, and people feeling invincible. Um, as, you know, somebody who's traded equities institutionally um, with a prop shop, you know, I was trading the of so, you know, back in the, those times. And, um, you know, it feels like this hot ball of money that's been injected in, into the market after, with, with all the stimulus, it's moved from, you know, Bitcoin into GameStop, into Dogecoin. Um, and as this ball moves around, um, you know, it's shrinking and it's moving towards more illiquid assets. And I think it's made its way into NFTs now. Um, and so you have Elon Musk you know, putting up this Bored Ape profile picture and he might be trolling. No one really knows. Um, but the reaction from these these holders of the NFTs is really telling. Right. Like they're all trying to latch on to this narrative that, oh, Elon bought Bored Ape. Like we're going to go up without realizing like a, a four hundred thousand dollar JPEG file of a monkey. Um, I, I think it sums up essentially everything that's been talked about uh throughout the, the course of, of this chat and you know, I, I could go on for hours to be to be honest I'll, I'll try to cut myself off and let you go but it just it kind of rings home sort of everything that that has been spoken about and, and i truly really believe we're getting towards the end um well, I, i'm somebody who just before George just so you know like I'm somebody who can traded equities institutionally I've done accounting at big four I, I, you know I have this trad background I, I've traded the meme stocks I've, I've been in the narratives I've developed the narratives right I've been in these chat boards right and I'm on the other side and I provide criticism and negative feedback and commentary on these NFT projects I mean I get like death threats for saying one bad thing about these certain projects right so it just it just really everything that was talked about really resonates. Um and, and yeah, so sorry to to hog
0: the mic. No, I, I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And um I'm just gonna pivot here before we get Jeff Garbaz to speak. Um you know, people you know, thank me for these rooms. It means a lot to me. It's great we're raising money for charity, but someone just DM me. And like I wanna cry when I read this. I first this is not the first one I've got like this. I just got this five minutes ago from somebody. I first heard you in an ape room. I was having the cult feeling. So glad I caught you in that room. It was a wake up call. That must have been the room I got destroyed in. At least it helped somebody. My attitudes toward investing have changed. I'm a very small investor, but so glad to have the insight that you all provide. Ignore narratives and follow the trends. Three Aces and I both got this DM from somebody. I mean, that's why we do these spaces. To help people. People, I believe all people are good. And they they want the truth. And we're just trying to help them find the truth. You know, it's not seen on CNBC. And I will name names. Because someone has to call out the bullshit.
11: So yesterday Jim Kramer said home builders can't go up until the Fed stops raising rates. Oh, go, go look at home builders today. three and a half percent. Are you yeah. kidding well, me? I mean yeah. but last thing and then I'll 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 drop it. Okay. So Raul Paul, I sent you a DM, uh, George. Yeah. Ra- Raul Paul, I sent he you know, he he bullposted ARC at one ten in the fall. Um and and uh, you know, now he's talking about recession and inflation and, and all that fun stuff. Guess what his profile picture is. This is it a board yacht club as well? He's shilling. He's shilling the same NFT thing.
0: You know, what? it's just a stop. Stop right there. Colpix, you and I got to talk. What I can't stand about that type of showboating. And, and I will call him out. It's a guy like that. He's just trying to run a business. He's, he's strong. Look, he's an older white male like myself. He's just trying to stay relevant with people. So he relentlessly went in showing all the crypto garbage a year or two ago. I mean, yeah, I, I really, it's like they say, if it's nothing good to say, don't say it. So I'm just not going to say anything.
11: And his all. buddy his buddy, All-Star Charts yesterday, I saw you, you know, going oh, his buddy All-Star chart. He posted, no, listen, hold on. You have to understand, you know, I'm, I'm way too young to even have these realizations. It's sad that it's gotten to this point. But, you know, I should be out there screaming that bored apes up only. me. But he, regardless, like. So yes, this JC All Star Charts guy—he posted on November third, twenty twenty-one. We're not bullish enough, crypto. Bitcoin was at sixty-nine thousand. He smashed the breakout, and now he's saying that he's buying Ark when it's down fifty percent. I, I know, mean, it's the same I know, trade.
0: I, I, know, it, I, know, it, I know, I know. I mean, uh, you know, the other horrible thing about social media: there's no memory what everybody said. They just—they just throw shit against the wall. No one holds them accountable, and then they move on. And I've had people take shots at me, like, who are you, the referee? No, I just, you know, have a memory, and people need to be held accountable. So, you know, I know that's an inconvenient truth for some people, but it is what it is. Hey, Cole Pizza, come back anytime. Really love your comments. All right, we're going to do a few more, and then we're going call it, to call it a night. Jeff Garbaz, how are you, my friend? What's going on, Jeff? Jeff, please unmute yourself.
12: There, I'm unmuted. How are you?
0: Good, man. What's up?
12: Let's see. A couple things. Um, I thought one thing that was kind of interesting, Dave's conversation with um, the woman about asking, like, how do you do this? Um, even though, as you know, I'm very technically driven, I also do a ton of macro work on my own and also fundamental work and then reading on top of it. And if you do all those things, I learned this a long time ago from a really good portfolio manager who ran equities at uh, a Texas teachers. And uh, he's like, if you do all that stuff, you're gonna be in good shape. So it really is a matter of, of doing all those things to get you positioned so you can see certain things. That that I think is a really key point. So, and anyone can do it. You just have to think, how do I as an individual um, be able to pull all those things together to then have a good perspective on, uh, on markets? And one, one thing that I find really interesting is, um, George, I sent you the. You're probably like, what the hell is he doing? I sent you uh, my DraftKings picks the other night. Um, I, I'm
0: yeah, 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 Jeff, what the hell are you doing? Exactly. Go
12: on. <laughs> so so the reason I did that was I just wanted to show you something. I ended up winning like like twenty five bucks. Not the not the point, but the point is, I'm considered to be um, a highly experienced player in that from like my results over time. And what's so interesting is if you dig, you have to really dig to find this in Draftkings. This table shows the percentage of all Draftkings daily fantasy winners to be highly experienced players in the last year. A highly experienced player has either done more than 1,000 fantasy contacts or won more than three fantasy contests with winnings valued at $1,000 each or more. okay? Highly experienced players take home 76% of the winnings. All others, all other players take home 24%. And you know what? It's it's the same statistic in the stock market to a large degree. I think you would probably agree with that, George. Correct, hundred percent. So it's it's really having the experience, and I'm I'm a big believer in. I know George is too, and I know other people on this are. In the Malcolm Gladwell, you got to put you got to put the hours in ten thousand hours to become an expert in something. As I've said to my kid who's a swimmer, I'm like, dude, you're right around like six thousand hours. You got you got another four thousand to go. So. Don't get pumped up about where you are. Enjoy it. Love it. But you got another 4,000 really probably the harder hours than what you've done so far. And, um, just don't try and jump in the, uh, the ocean and try and do every single thing. Take it bit by bit, learn from your experiences, grow that and kind of add to it. And it's kind of funny. Like when I came on, when Peter was finishing up and, um, there's, I, I I think I've mentioned this once before. The book, The Hot Hand. Um, people get hot. I mean, George, you know this. Probably the industry where it's the most common is uh, the hedge fund industry. People get hot for a period of time, and then the the uh, it, it fades and goes away. Like Kathy Ark, she had Kathy uh, Kathy Wood had her hot period when she was, you know, could do no wrong, and then that came to an end, just like you know Garrett von Wagner and all the other crews you've named in different periods of time and uh, they, the streaks happen but they happen for reasons and this book went through mathematically and looked at I I posted it before but I think it's really worth uh, paying attention to yeah, so, and understanding. D-
0: d- Jeff let me interrupt you. What's the name of the book again for everyone? It's called, it is called It's
12: it's called the uh, the hot hand.
0: Okay, that's great. Okay. And the
12: author and the author is uh Ben Ben Cohen. Um, so it's definitely worth, you know, definitely worth um, the read and taking a look at it. And what's what's so interesting about it? Just one one quick comment, basketball analogy. Um, Seth Curry had a game against the Knicks, and uh, in that game, it changed his whole entire career because 33 of his 54 points in that game were three pointers. And uh, he he remarked after the game, he said. The most locked in I've ever been. Anytime I got a glimmer of daylight, I let it go. The feeling that Curry described gave him a sense of confidence, one which carried well beyond the game. Before the game, he averaged 18 points and five, three pointers a game. Afterward, he averaged 26 points a game and increased the number of three point shots to 10. Within two years, he was the NBA's MVP. And then a year later was the first unanimous MVP in the history of the NBA. Um, Streaks are, are really, be aware of when you're in a streak and really try and take advantage of it and know when you fall out of a streak, too. It's interesting. Shakespeare wrote King Lear, Macbeth, Anthony, and Cleopatra in one year. Does anyone know why he wrote that in one year?
0: Please do tell us.
12: Because London was going through a, a, a plague in the 1600s. So all he did was hunker down and he just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. So there's reasons why these things happen. So um, you know, try and think these things through and enjoy
0: those periods right. of
12: time. That's that's all I wanted to throw out today.
0: Jeff Jeff, really, really appreciate it. great insight. Thanks so much. And by the way, you're I don't know if we're gonna catch the game five in Boston next Friday. It looks winds. I gotta call you about that. But your but your bucks looked pretty sick last night, my friend.
12: Oh, they were they were they were heinous. <laughs> they did not look very good. They tried to come back and they, they just couldn't do it. So we'll see what happens when they uh, when they go to Milwaukee.
0: Th- thanks for that, Jeff. All right, we've got four speakers left, and then I'm going to close the room. I want to go quickly to Shrub, and then Jake. Shrub, you got you got a comment?
9: Yeah, just because we we were talking about investor psychology, the one book that I recommend, uh, which is my favorite book actually on uh, on investing, is uh, the Gambler by Dostoevsky, um, and it really captures the spirit of the current market as well. That you know, the gambler was. Uh, he was doing it for a higher cause, and he was a good player, but then he and then he just goes deeper and deeper and becomes obsessed and I think this is what uh you know to the 10,000 10, hours that you need to put in this game, I think you need to put this same amount, if not more uh to control your emotions and you know just uh, just suppress that gambling instinct because I think that's where a lot of people are are getting fucked if i can use that, uh, that that expression so you really need to control the gambling aspect and just realize you know it's your money it's your family's money it's money that can help do good or it's your investors money so i think this is where people are getting uh, really sidetracked especially in this market
0: thanks for that i always appreciate it all right so connor is back uh connor we lost you before so connor and then jake what's up connor please unmute yourself
13: Hi George, thanks for the spaces. Uh, regular listener and first time speaker here, so thanks for having me up. Um, so no, just uh, just on the on the topic of kind of the mania behind uh, you know the meme stocks and crypto. I mean, a thought I had on on how this is being perpetuated is really, you know, I, I just wonder is this a kind of a, a response to kind of disillusionment among kind of you know uh, retail traders or day traders or not call it non professionals. So if you look at kind of what what's happened with the rise of private equity over the last number of years of the last decade, pretty much, where it's you know it, it's evolved from LBOs to buying up all kinds of real estate and housing, and you know they don't buy apartment blocks anymore; they buy whole communities. And I, I kind of think that some of this um, it's a bit like a, this Occupy Wall Street mindset, but you know, in in a retail kind of traders, um, you know, in a, in a retail trading kind of uh, vehicle or phenomenon where. You know, this is their way. This is a kind of a retail trader's way of kind of fighting back, or you know, getting getting into the game themselves, um, just because you know, they I suppose you know they, they've been priced out of uh, of everything, of owning houses. I mean, I'm I'm from Ireland. I live you know here in Dublin, and it's impossible for younger people to buy a house. And so, but you know, they're all in crypto, and they're all in in. in in, in these meme stocks and I think really it's kind of this become this kind of desperate lottery mindset born out of of disillusionment and you know I went into one of these um, ape rooms just out of curiosity and I think they were talking about AMC and they were talking about how they like AMC because um, you know it's they like the community and they you know they want to support each other you know obviously you know total nonsense no financial analysis or anything like that involved so I mean I mean it's a pity Peter it, it isn't on the call anymore just for you know in terms of getting his take on on the on the crowd psychology aspect of this but i i just think this is um you know th- this is kind of a reaction to the kind of financialization and crowding out yeah, uh, yes up, up, up. Yeah kind so I have to interrupt you were you on the call from the very beginning uh i wasn't no i i joined yeah. about halfway through so
0: yeah so so peter did speak to that and uh, it's exactly, you might imagine the answer gives exactly what you're alluding to. It's exactly what you're alluding to. People feeling left out, pissed off, you know, and so they band together. And there's a sort of a revenge attitude about the whole thing. So, no, your, 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 your gut instinct is is spot on with the question you're asking. So, thank you for the question, Connor. Um, I'd like to kind of move the room along, if you don't mind, just because I'm getting a little bit tired. Sure, yeah. Thanks, I wanna George. I want to close the My pleasure. We're going to do Jake and then Jay. Jake, please unmute yourself. Jake? we're
7: not leaving Jay? hello we're hello we're not we're not leaving so I heard about this uh MC theater closing now so what's the deal with that what's going on here wait sorry what's the question I ask the question what's going on with the the theater shutting down the M, the CMC theater what why are you guys shutting down what, what's the deal here
0: uh, I don't know what he was talking about <laughs> he's got the wrong
3: room <laughs> three aces did you make any sense to that i don't know what that plat that guy was on three aces yeah i think it's uh martini time for jay <laughs> all
0: right hey jay i think you're gonna be the last question jay what's up please unmute
9: yourself hi hi good evening george and three aces uh, you have been both of both of you have been hosting some very amazing spaces first of all thank you for that george i want to put put uh i want you i would request you to put your uh auto analyst hat back on you you mentioned that you started as an auto analyst. Now you are aware that uh, the mass production started with Ford, but eventually the automobile actually moved to the South Koreans and Japanese, actually outperforming in that space, right? Now you, 3A, says everybody has, and I also have the same view that Tesla has gone too too far beyond in the EV thing. Are you seeing any particular side in the auto industry, any region which is actually very well disciplined to capture this trend in the longer term, or or Jay
0: Jay, 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 I'm gonna to have to interrupt you. Um, it's a great question. It's just not for this room. This whole room has been about investor psychology and um, um, behavioral finance, and so um, we're trying to stay on point. So, thank you for the question. Please bring it up in another room. Three Aces, did you want to say anything before we uh, before we uh, do, do, uh, say good night? Or I'm gonna ask Three Aces, and then I'm gonna ask Carol. Carol, you can make a you can make a, a, a pitch. Actually, you know what? Hold on. We got one last one. I'm gonna la- I'm gonna allow Mark, Mark Newman. I'm gonna allow, hold hold allow Mark Newman, but he is the last one. So Mark, you're in under the buzzer. Keep it tight. We're about to close it, but I'm gonna let you ask the last 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 comment or question. Mark, I just think what's up. Hey, can you hear me? We got hey, you. What's hey, up, really man?
2: Quick. So we're talking about market psychology, and I heard I think it was three aces earlier who said it's a con, right? The Fed's activity. And let's just for a second, and I'm sorry I caught it only the second hour of this show. I don't know if I, if anyone touched on it earlier, but just I was listening to Powell. The first thing he said, right, he addressed the people, the, the, ple- the plebs, and said, everyone, I want you to understand inflation is serious, inflation is real, we're on it, and inflation is too high. And then about, I don't know, six, eight minutes later, Steve Leesman, Mr. CNBC – He teed up Jay by saying, what do you think about 75 bips? And he said, no, that's not going to happen. And from right there, okay, that was about 2.45 p.m., I counted at least uh, 35 to 40, 1,500 mark ticks on the index, which meant 1,500 stocks in the universe of the U.S. were going up. And that happened 30 times in the next hour. Okay, not even it was like 45 minutes between 245 and 330, which meant it was like a all for one buy program, massive FOMO. And we saw cryptos go up. I look at about 200 stocks on my little one of my pages. I couldn't find one that was up less than two percent. So this went when three aces said it before. I think it was him about the con, the con. And that's exactly how this is playing, right, in terms of psychology. We know that over the last few weeks, everyone's, not everyone, but a ton of people have sold a ton of stuff. Maybe not enough. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But there's a lot of people who are way down in their gross exposure. So today's action with uh, Powell playing the I'm a dove in the short term, even though he started the whole conversation with inflation, just proves how – it is that thing that three aces said. It's a con. It's just like, let me keep the game going. And I think um, the woman he was talking to at the time, I don't remember her name. Sadly, she told him her of her um, her father. What a terrible story. I, I Look, that's a serious discussion because there are a lot of people who believe the Fed is out there to do good for the people. You know who's out there to do good for the people? George and three aces. Having rooms like this, the anti-Jim Cramer guys. Those are the ones. So when you get those DMs, George, that's because you're doing real work and you're really showing people the true story. And a lot of these people, the financialization of everything has led to a lot of cons. The other guy, the younger guy who came at the end talking about Musk and Raul Paul, whatever, they're playing that game, keeping that game going. So I think it's very important. Even Michael Belkin yesterday, right? He said it's four to six weeks away. He thinks some problems. I had discussions with people today, and they were like, oh, look at what. You got ripped right in your face. I said to them, I didn't say four to six hours. (laughs) I said four to six weeks. So this is how it sets up. And I think the FOMO today, the FOMO we saw today in that post-fed bullsh crap was people jumping in. So we are setting up still for the psychology. And your younger guy who came in at the end talking about all the chat rooms, he's on it. We're on it. And it's impressive to see a young guy with that view probably because he's been listening to guys like George. So everyone just really take a breath after today and be like, look, that's not the sign of a healthy market. It's just not. I think sentiment trader said the last time this kind of a move happened on a Fed day was like March 21, 2000 or something. We know what happened three days later it was the top. So everyone's just like, you know, understand. Everyone is hoping and praying that the game continues. The ones who are listening to space rooms like this realize that it's on borrowed time. And I think that's where the psychology is really important—to not get thrown off by one day like today, but to understand that greater picture. And George, always—you know—you're doing great work here, man. Keep it up.
0: Mark, thanks you. Thanks for your kind words. Thanks for your insight. We all benefit together. So we're going to do go to Carol, uh, who's going to plug the, the last. Uh, Carol, remind people of what we're doing here with World Center Kitchen and maybe specifically speak to where we are on the pledge and how every dollar people give now is going to be worth $2. And then we're going to have three aces close the room. Carol, the floor is yours.
6: Okay. Well, right now we're at $105,880. And when Alexander made his very generous matching gift pledge of 50K, that was back when we were at $81,200. So we need to get to $131,200 of fifty K that we've raised so we're for Alexander to match it with another fifty K. That means we're twenty-five thousand three hundred and twenty dollars away from getting there, which I'm sure we can accomplish in a couple more spaces and today's space um, combined. Um, and just a, a few housekeeping notes. Anybody who wants stats on uh, how many people World Central Kitchen is fed and so forth, they're posted in my Twitter feed. George and I both have links to his special fundraising link, which allows us to keep a running tally of how much we've raised as a group. And anybody who has questions about um, matching employer gifts, which some of you have very kindly arranged for, and or gifts from donor-advised funds or tax deductibility, just uh, DM me. And I'll I'll be of help in terms of explaining what options there are in those areas as well.
0: Okay, so thanks for that, Carol. Carol, one key point that you raised, I hadn't thought of until you brought it up the other day, and that's sense of community. Have you been able to get from World Central Kitchens just a ballpark number? How many people have contributed? Do you have any idea?
6: um i have not done that yet i will go through that and manually count how many people are on your page i know we're missing a few so bear with the world central kitchen who's going to help me get more hard facts it just they're inundated right with, right, with right.
0: but, but is, i'm gonna just guess it's got to be at least two or three hundred people given so far Would you? yeah i would yeah.
6: say i would say it's uh, in the hundreds yes
0: yeah so thank you to everybody you know everyone gives according to their means You know, if you're a student and, and, you know, give 10 bucks, that's great. If you're well-heeled and you're managing millions or tens of millions, you know, Alexander gave 50000 the other day, so everyone gives according to their means. It's not a question of who gives the most. It's who gives the most according to their means. With that, three aces, anything else you want to say? Yeah,
3: I just wanted to say one thing. I mean, you know, we're talking about the kitchen and stuff, but but guys, you know, uh, my dad was a cab driver, and, you know, in my house – There were plenty, plenty, plenty of times there was just no food, okay? But I would live in New York City and, and so on. You know, the people that we're talking about here, this is not a political thing, zero, nothing. There are millions of people who have basically been forced out of their homes with their children and have lost their husbands to war who are now refugees. And you have an organization sitting right smack in the middle of the war zone Feeding these people who have, who lost one hundred percent of everything, they don't even have money for food. Okay, so just while you're sitting here thinking and counting your P and Ls and your Hawaii vacations and what yacht you're going to cruise around on the Caribbean, just think, um, you know, a few bucks, you know, to go help some folks who can't who who have lost everything to no fault of their own. To politics, it's just politics. It's man-made. So that's really what we're talking about here. But back to Mark's thing, just to finish up, because Peter's Peter Atwater, in my opinion, is not only just the absolute. Uh, he's the only one, George, that we have that you have on that is 100 percent right about all of it. Everybody else is right and wrong, including you, me, Garbaz, all of us. You know, we're out there, you know, doing the best we can. But if you think about it and you take a step back, Mark, and thank you for the kind words, Um the con is the price, right? So you, know, so, so, you know, the con in politics is the media, right? You have politicians in North America, okay? Um, who have approval ratings, the, those of a garden snail, okay? Who continue to get on TV and lie, cheat and steal and it's supported by the media. The media just, you know, it's the media, right? So I don't wanna get into that. But in any event, George, thank you very much. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you, Three Aces. Thank
0: you, Carol. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Peter. He's not here anymore. It's been a great room. Uh, We're going to keep bringing you the best of the best. Again, we have the best speakers, the best content, the best moderation, and the smartest audience. And we're doing more for charity than anybody else on Twitter. So there. With that, everyone, good night. See you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.